Samuel Usk sounded the alarm early in the 16th century that a wild monster of such strange form and horrible mind that all Europe trembles at the mere mention of its name was on the loose. That wild monster was the Spanish Inquisition, and what no one, including Usk, could have predicted was that Spain would remain in that state of constant terror for more than 300 years. We've already delved into the historical roots of anti-Semitism and the unique history of religious coexistence on the Iberian Peninsula. In today's episode, we finally examine the inner workings of the Spanish Inquisition. continued, calling the Inquisition a monster that rises in the air on a thousand wings. Wherever it passes, its shadow spreads a pall of gloom over the brightest sun, the green grass which it treads, or the luxuriant tree which it alights, dries, decays, and withers. It desolates the countryside until it is like the Syrian deserts and sands. So why would King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella unleash this beast? Following the nearly complete Reconquista, Isabella and Ferdinand sought to create one homogenous nation. This was to be the final cultural fight in defining their new nation. Isaac Cardosa wrote in 1679 that, In a nation like Spain there are many nations so intermingled that the original one can no longer be recognized. Israel, by contrast, is one people among many, one even though scattered, and in all places separate and distinct. Cardosa's work, titled The Excellence of the Jews, pointed out the cracks in the foundations of what would become one of the most powerful empires during Cardosa's lifetime. The image of a peaceful coexistence between Muslims, Christians, and Jews was shattered during the 14th century. The 1300s were full of political and economic upheavals. The Black Death, wars of succession, and famines devastated Spain. Anti-Semitism is linked to prevailing circumstances. When things are going well, there's not that much impetus to let hate fill one's heart. Persecutions and episodes of violent hatred nearly always stem from downturns within social and economic life. As we examined previously, the Jewish people were a small minority in Spain, which stood out from the majority. Their life was that of the biblical Joseph. As in, when too many cows are thin, as in the Egypt of the pharaohs, they know that they will be the first to suffer. The religious coexistence in Spain was not a false front put on by the Spaniards. They weren't pretending. They did not suddenly reveal to their neighbors that they had been faking harmony. Instead, what changed in the 14th century were the conditions that ordinary Spaniards lived in. People's mentalities were not what suddenly changed. It was their circumstances. First, Spanish Jewry were accused of poisoning the wells to bring the Black Death to Spanish shores. 
The evidence at the time was that Jews perished from the plague at far lower rates than their peers. Of course, modern science indicates that the Jews' diligence regarding hygiene kept them safer than the surrounding citizens as the plague was spread via fleas from rats. The calamity that ensued set off a wave of persecution. In Spanish Pamplona, Jews were victims of targeted assassination. In Estella, in 1328, a Franciscan monk provoked a riot with his anti-Semitic sermon which resulted in the murder of the Jews within their homes. Anti-Semitic riots consumed Barcelona in 1348. Historian Henry Kamen marks these riots as the official establishment of anti-Semitism within Spain. It also marked the introduction of the practice of usury to Spain, and subsequently the stereotypes of a Jew that sucked the blood of the poor. The fact that in Spain, Jews were the exclusive tax collectors for the crown meant that they were both a beneficiary and the sole instrument of taxation. Oppression continued throughout the rest of the century. In 1366, King Henry of Trastamara entered the town of Burgos and demanded a huge ransom of the Jewish townspeople. When they could not pay up, they were sold into slavery as their synagogues were looted. 1378 saw the rise of the Archdeacon of Ethitha, Fernando Martinez, raise his profile with a series of anti-Semitic sermons. A decade later, Martinez filled a power vacuum after two kings died within months of each other. Because of Martinez's preaching, a small pogrom occurred, killing dozens. The mayor of Seville arrested the ringleaders of the murders, but that only pushed the craze Martinez further across the line of decency. The preaching that ensued resulted in one of the greatest Jewish massacres in world history. On June 6, 1391, rioters blocked all exits to the Jewish quarter of Seville. The area was set aflame and 4,000 Jews died horrifically that day. Just for comparison's sake, 2,977 died in the September 11th attacks, nearly 1,000 less than the Great Massacre of Seville. This number looms significantly larger when you remember that there are a lot less people living in Spain during the post-plague 14th century. The riots spread like the plague throughout Spain. Synagogues were torched, Jewish houses were plundered, and mass murder as well as rape occurred throughout the country. Only Navarre was spared from the anti-Semitic surge of violence. There was only one way for the Jews to sidestep the violence that had arrived at their doorstep. They converted to Christianity. As a universalizing faith, Christianity is a comparatively easy faith to convert to. It is literally the spoken goal of Christians to try and convert you. Add in the fact that the Jewish faith and the Christian faith share a common starting point, and many Jews saw conversion as a better option compared to martyrdom. For those unwilling to convert, there were a few options. Refugees from Castile and Aragon made their way to Navarre seeking sanctuary. Others traveled to France, Portugal, and North Africa. Those that remained within their territories sought to isolate themselves by moving to smaller rural settlements.
mass conversion period peaked around 1415, at which point Catherine, the queen mother, forced Jews to move into ghettos, the Spanish term for which were aljamas. These were restricted to one synagogue, and Jews were prevented from wearing their hair and beards short. They also had to sew a red disc onto their clothing. The red disc, as well as the long hair and beard, singled them out and made it impossible for them to assimilate with locals. It became illegal for Jews to practice certain professions, such as doctors, chemists, blacksmiths, and pharmacists. Possession of the Talmud, the companion to the Torah, became illegal, and Jews were forced to attend three Christian sermons each and every year, one on the second Sunday of Advent, one on Easter Monday, and one that was given to the discretion of the local government. The deaths and forced conversions in Seville, the epicenter of the violence in 1391, made it that by 1492 there were virtually no Jews left in Seville to convert. Despite this, individual monastic orders, such as the Dominicans, led mass evangelization campaigns. Vincent Ferrer of Valencia showed a flair for the dramatic as he was keen to preach hatred from within the grounds of cemeteries right as night fell around the headstones. To add ambiance, he was surrounded not only by penitents, but flagellants, individuals that violently whipped themselves to atone for their sins. It was not just a convert-or-die scheme that the church was running. Pope Benedict III attempted to academically sway the remaining Spanish Jews by establishing the truth of Christianity by means of the original Jewish texts. Identified as the controversy of Tortosa, the church argued that rabbis had deliberately falsified the Talmud regarding key points, such as the coming of the Messiah. Benedict argued without evidence that the original text revealed that Jesus was the true Messiah. Between 1391 and 1415, more than half of Spain's Jews were baptized into Christianity. Add in the deaths from this period, and only 100,000 faithful Jews remained within Spain's borders. There was a slight reprieve beginning in 1419, as the kings John and Alfonso I removed most of the discriminatory measures. But the damage had been done. In Aragon, not a single Jew held on to a position of power. In Castile, the Jews who had previously made up the totality of the tax collectors were reduced by three-fourths. Judaism would never again recover in Spain. These events created an entirely new class of individuals in Spain. The Spanish will refer to them as conversos, or new Christians, individuals that had converted to Christianity. Because of the events we just described, the vast majority of conversos at this time were former Jews. Since these conversions were forced, most Spaniards viewed the conversos with suspicion as a fifth column within the church. The Spanish Inquisition was created to deal with the converts that were neither quite Christian enough for their liking, nor Spanish enough for the monarch's liking. For what it's worth, Ferdinand and Isabella were never personally anti-Semitic. Both employed Jewish citizens and conversos in high positions. Isabella's confessor was a converso. At times, they both went out of their way to protect Jews within their court. Despite their personal feelings regarding Jews, the Inquisition that they unleash will produce a reign of terror and oppression 
that eradicates Jewish culture across the global holdings of the Spanish Empire. There is no way that Juan de Leon of Aranda could know that the Inquisition would last for 300 years when he posited in 1492 that one should, quote, not grieve over the departure from Spain, for they have had to drink down their death in one gulp, whereas the rest of us have to stay behind among these wicked people, receiving death from them every day. De Leon was speaking as a converso, a new Christian that could stay in Spain while the remaining Jews were forcibly evicted from the country. Why create this institution in the first place? Isabella was the first to be swayed. By the time of the Jewish removal mandate in 1492, conversos had been around in large numbers for 77 years. Many converts became true Christians. Curiously, many of those became the most anti-Semitic among the Spanish. There were, however, a significant number of conversos that privately retained their Jewish religious practices. Additionally, nearly all the individual converts, true Christians or not, maintained their Jewish cultural behaviors. One can understand that getting baptism does not suddenly make these former kosher Jews want to instantly tear into a hog in order to enjoy the bacon that they denied themselves for the entirety of their people's existence. Polish Americans that are forced to enjoy their grandmother's sauerkraut each family gathering understand the lingering power of cultural traditions, as well as the lingering smell of that sauerkraut. As discussed in the first episode in this series, the Jewish people had successfully retained their cultural traditions for more than 3,000 years. These practices survived both breakings of the temple, they survived the diaspora, Jewish culture had survived the bubonic plague. Their cultural heritage was not going to be cowed into submission by a splash of holy water on their foreheads. Conversos had a lot of relapses regarding their former faith, something that became known in Spain as Judaizing. Worse, however, was the fact that children of conversos were still observing Jewish cultural practices, including recognition of the Sabbath, circumcision, and eating meat on Christian holy days. The Spanish monarchs concluded that this relapse was taking place because conversos were still living nearby practicing Jews. While the Jewish population may not have been dense, there were still a limited number of synagogues and aljamas that had survived the conversion era. Thus, the original spoken raison de ete for the Spanish Inquisition. The identification and subsequent filtering out of true conversos from those that were actively practicing Judaism. The project was put in motion in 1478 with Ferdinand seeking permission from the Pope to set up an Inquisition office within his borders. This was not a new idea. The Inquisition as a concept and limited force had existed for hundreds of years throughout Europe. The Spanish Inquisition had one distinct difference, however and was one that Ferdinand demanded. Instead of the Pope and his archbishops overseeing the tribunal, this one would be set up, staffed, and governed directly and exclusively by the Spanish throne. This became the unspoken second reason for the creation of the Spanish Inquisition, the expansion of state power in Spain. Ferdinand considered it in clear real politic. It would become an instrument used to assert his authority, he would utilize it in order to unite Spain under one centralized authority, 
for the first time in its extensive history. papal bull, or edict, authorizing the creation of what was called the Holy Office, was titled Exigit Sincere Devotionis and was dated November 1st, 1478. It was not as all-encompassing as Ferdinand desired, allowing later versions of the Catholic Church to divorce themselves from culpability for the Inquisition's ensuing crimes against humanity. The instruction allowed Ferdinand and Isabella to appoint inquisitors in their kingdoms of Aragon and Castile, something that they would not act upon until September 27, 1480. The delay suggests that the monarchs were hesitant to unleash their newfound powers, and there's some evidence for their reluctance. When members of the influential Santangles family was accused of Judaizing, the king went out of his way to protect them. However, Conversos in Seville pushed the issue with the publishing of illegal pamphlets that pushed the idea that it was possible to practice Christianity and Judaism concurrently. Later pamphlets emphasized the Conversos' superiority to that of the old Christians as they shared the Jewish blood of Jesus. Lastly, in what had to be a final straw for some Christians, pamphlets suggested that Jews made for better Christians because only Jews were intelligent enough to not be taken in by the nonsense that Catholic priests supposedly said during Mass. Cardinal Tomas de Torquemada was appointed as the first Grand Inquisitor, the man who would be in charge of promoting and assigning inquisitors to the regions of Spain. Torquemada is regarded as the prototype for the fanatical and cruel inquisitor. Spanish chronicler Sebastian de Olmedo referred to him as the hammer of heretics, the light of Spain, the savior of his country, the honor of his Dominican order. Although we are only mentioning his name now, he was involved in this story from the very beginning. As a member of the clergy, he established a rapport with Isabella when she was but a princess. He was her confessor and advisor when she made the decision to marry Ferdinand. Torquemada was well known for both his austerity and piety. He never ate meat, wore clothing made of only linen, and refused all honors previously offered to him. Some critics point to these refusals as good politics, as each promotion would have moved him farther away from the queen's court. Interestingly, Torquemada himself was a descendant of a Conversos family. Torquemada ran the Inquisition for 15 years, expanding it from an operation in Seville to a permanent bureaucracy in more than two dozen territories and on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. Forty-four other men sat in the chair of the Grand Inquisitor over the course of the Spanish Inquisition, which maintained continuous operation from 1480 to 1820. Since this was a political appointment that reported only to the throne, royals were particularly vigilant in their choice of contenders, with loyalty as one of the key qualities they looked for in a candidate. The minimum age for an inquisitor was only 30. The Inquisition was not the only judicial system set up in Spain. Like all modern nations, there was a flourishing system of law for civil crimes. The Inquisition was purely an ecclesiastical or religious court system placed under the control of the state. 
is served to root out and punish religious crimes rather than violations of Spain's traditional secular legal code. For instance, cheating or bigamy is not illegal in the United States. No judge will send someone to prison for infidelity. However, it is a clear violation of the Christian and Jewish Ten Commandments. As a religious court, the Inquisition was given jurisdiction and the ability to punish such crimes against God's laws that were not included within the Spanish Corpus Juris Civilis. The Spanish civil court procedures differed dramatically from the Inquisition. In Latin, inquiro means, I seek out, and Inquisition is defined as a search. Unlike the accusatory method that Roman and American law is based upon, the Inquisition permitted the inquisitor-slash-judge to operate even without an accuser initiating legal action. Public rumor on its own was reason enough. The position of inquisitor combined policing and judicial powers. Jews were beyond their reach, however, as the Inquisition only resided over cases involving Christians. For Jews, that illegality remained after 1492. The civil courts had loaned jurisdiction over them. Thus, the early bearers of the over-eagerness of the Inquisition were Christian conversos. Seville, the first province for the Holy Office, was also the first test of its power. From the beginning, Conversos plotted against the appointment of an inquisitor with violent intentions. A wealthy Conversos merchant, Don Diego de Susana, convened a meeting of powerful Conversos to plan an armed rebellion against the Inquisition. His daughter, Susana, feared that her boyfriend, who was a member of the so-called Old Christians of Spain, would be put in danger if her father's plot proceeded. Even though the planning was in its infancy, she confessed the conspiracy to her boyfriend, who promptly reported them to the Holy Office. The group was arrested, tried by the Inquisition, and most of the conspirators, including Susana's father, was executed. Susana herself had become somewhat of a legend in Seville. After the arrest, she supposedly never left her apartments and went so far to arrange for her head to hang from the windowsill of her apartment after her death. The head hung for months until it was replaced with an oil lamp. Today a skull along with her name adorn a plaque visible from the street marking the home of La Hermosa Hembra, the pretty woman. The plotters' fears of the Seville Inquisition were warranted. Between 1481 and 1488, 700 executions and thousands of other sentences, mostly life imprisonment, were handed out by the court. Future conspirators, however, would succeed where Don Diego had failed. Saint Pedro de Arbues served as the Inquisitor of Aragon. He survived the first two assassination attempts, but like so many other instances, it was the third time that was the charm. Conversos falsely assumed that a show of strength would intimidate the crown into disbanding the holy office. Assassins were hired and despite the chainmail and helmet that de Arbois had sewn into his holy garments, he was successfully stabbed through the neck while kneeling before the altar in the cathedral of Saragossa. The murder and subsequent trial of the Conversos conspirators had the opposite effect of what was intended. It emboldened and entrenched the Inquisition throughout Spain. 
Pope Sextus IV was horrified by the reports that were emerging from Spain. It quickly became apparent that the Spanish Inquisition was not merely another iteration of the medieval Inquisition, but an all-new entity unto itself. Despite Torquemada's status as a cardinal, it was clear that his loyalty was to his monarchs rather than to the Rome. Against the Pope's calls for disbanding the institution, Ferdinand brought heavy diplomatic pressure against the pontiff. The letter that the Spanish king sent to the Pope includes barely veiled threats. Ferdinand wrote, quote, Things have been told to me, Holy Father, which if true would seem to merit the greatest astonishment. It is said that your holiness has granted the conversos a general pardon for all the errors and offenses they have committed. To these rumors, however, we have given no credence, because they seem to be things which would in no way have been conceded by your holiness, who has a duty to the Inquisition. But if by chance concessions have been made through the persistence and cunning persuasion of the said conversos, I intend never to let them take effect. Take care, therefore, not to let the matter go further, and to revoke any concessions and entrust us with the care of this question." In the end, Ferdinand was forced to accept zero conditions, and categorically refused to allow any who were sentenced an appeal to the Vatican. Upon the Pope's death, his successor, Innocent VIII, gave Isabella and Ferdinand the right to appoint Torquemada's successor upon his retirement, which had been the only influence that Rome had retained regarding the Spanish Inquisition. Seville was the epicenter of the Judaizing pamphlets. The king and queen believed that the introduction of the Inquisition would force conversos to fully embrace Christianity. This would in turn create a utopia where there would be nothing to distinguish the conversos from the rest of Christian Spain, and anti-Semitism, the world's oldest hatred, would just magically disappear from Spanish society. It did not work. Instead of looking at the lack of positive outcomes and re-examining the purpose of the Inquisition, the monarchs excused its failings and did what so many rulers have done throughout the ages. They scapegoated the Jews. While there were not a lot of them left after the violence in 1391, Ferdinand and Isabella believed that the presence of Jews in Spain prevented the full acceptance of Christianity among the conversos. Armed with this conclusion, they issued the edict for the expulsion of all Jews from Spain. They were not the first European nation to author an exclusion order. England had expelled its Jews in 1290. The expulsion order occurred in 1492, the same year that Ferdinand and Isabella would approve of Christopher Columbus's voyage to find a new route to India. Forced exclusion from your home nation is obviously a horrible act, but the evidence points to the Catholic monarchs truly believing that they were doing good. The expulsion of the Jews would remove a sizable number of dependable taxpayers and be interpreted by their peer nations, as well as historians, as a horrible act of intolerance. So they went into it with their eyes wide open. Torquemada was the loudest advocate of the decision. The Queen's personal writings reveal that she knew the act of expulsion would result in economic stagnation and the loss of valuable revenue to the state. Those writings also reveal that they believe the final result would be a reduction in anti-Semitism. The bottom line was that their decision in 1492 not only prolonged anti-Semitism, it served to reinforce it. 
Before we detail that increase in anti-Semitism, let us first discuss what happened to the Spanish Jews. Some unwilling to leave their homes converted to Christianity. This group formed a new set of conversos in Spain. Those that decided to retain their faith had to promptly pack up and move within four months. Seeking to limit the economic damage, the monarchs included the stipulation that Jews were not allowed to take any gold or silver, including minted coins, the primary source of money at this point in Spain with them. Supply and demand are not kind to those forced in situations like this. Over 100,000 Jews had to simultaneously liquidate all their property and belongings. The fact that there were so many expelled meant that supply greatly outstripped demand, forcing prices to rock-bottom lows. Furthermore, everyone knew the date of expulsion, thus they could just wait till the last minute when the sellers were desperate to be gone. Lastly, they had to accept a portable currency that was not gold or silver, which further limited them to buyers' whims as stating that their offer was the best anyone would be able to give them. There were no alternatives. Those who stayed without converting faced execution if caught. Those that left became known as the Septharctic Jews, who dispersed generally to four different areas. North Africa, the Ottoman Empire, Portugal, and Italy. Tragedy followed these Jews. Many of those that traveled to northern Africa were enslaved, as North Africa, particularly Morocco, was experiencing a famine during this time. Again, we see how hatred of an other rises during an economic or political crisis. Refugees to Portugal found peace, at least initially. The Portuguese king pledged that the Inquisition would not come to Portugal for 40 years. The word of King Manuel I wasn't worth much, however, and Portuguese Jews were subjected to forced conversions as early as four years after their arrival. The persecution of these Jews is eerily similar to those that fled the rise of Germany's Nazis to neighboring Poland, only to have the evil follow them across the border. Another large group went to Italy, but Ferdinand's estates in Italy eventually extended his reach to the Italian peninsula. Those that fared the best were the Jews that ventured to the Ottoman Empire, where Sultan Bayezid II dispatched his navy to ensure their safe travel. He is alleged to have said, quote, Those who say that Ferdinand and Isabella are wise are indeed fools, for he gives me, his enemy, his national treasure, the Jews. Many of those that left found the experience abroad so appalling that they returned to Spain and yielded to conversion. It was a price that they were willing to pay in return for the only home that they had ever known. On November 10, 1492, seven months after the Edict of Expulsion went into effect, it became official policy that both civil and church authorities would witness the baptisms of the returnees, and that they be allowed to reacquire any property that they had previously had for the same price at which it was sold. Acts like this help make it clear that Isabella and Ferdinand were more interested in conversion rather than exclusion. So how did the Inquisition function? When you investigate it, it becomes much less of a monster and much more of a monstrous, albeit clearly delineated bureaucracy. Inquisitions were neither new nor unique to Spain. The medieval Inquisition had existed for centuries, but the Spanish Inquisition differed in two respects. First, the inquisitors were subservient only to the monarchs of Spain rather than the Pope. Secondly, it became a permanent feature of the Spanish system, rather than a temporary measure. The king and queen appointed a grand inquisitor, the first of whom was Tomás de Tocmada. The grand inquisitor would then appoint individual inquisitors to the provinces of Spain. 
It was typical for a province to have two inquisitors, but there were occasions when three operated concurrently. The inquisitors were both part prosecutors and part judges. They did not have to be members of the clergy, but oftentimes were. The best inquisitors had a training and background in legal scholarship, particularly canon law. Towards the end of the Inquisition, it was no longer a prerequisite to be university trained. Each inquisitor would run a network of what were termed familiars. These unpaid positions served as the eyes and ears of the Inquisition. The creation of a network of familiars within each tribunal district was the first task for a newly appointed inquisitor. Records in the Castile Concordia suggested that these positions were handed out quite liberally. The Concordia reveals that at one point there were 805 familiars in Toledo, 554 in Granada, and 1,009 for Galatia. At the height of the Inquisition, there were more than 20,000 familiars, enough to count as an auxiliary private police force. In Valencia, there was a ratio of one familiar for every 42 households. Inquisitors looked for the purest of Christian bloodlines when choosing familiars. Individuals who did not have any suspicion of Judaizing or blasphemy attached to their name. Although they were unpaid positions, being bestowed the title of familiar unlocked the right to bear arms for the position holder. But the purpose of such a right was purely for shielding inquisitors when they were near. Torquemada regularly traveled in the presence of 250 armed familiars. The position also carried the added benefit of bestowing exclusive criminal jurisdiction to the inquisitor courts rather than the civil ones. This meant that a familiar could only be tried by the inquisitor who had chosen them for the position in the first place. As one might suspect, this near immunity resulted in more than a few familiars acting above the law and becoming corrupt. Eventually, they became exempt from certain taxes and had to be lodged at the expense of the town's residents when they traveled. In 1598 in Seville, the accommodations given to the inquisitors were not up to their high standards, and they withdrew in protest and excommunicated those who had made the arrangements for them. All this outrage occurred with the backdrop of the funeral of King Philip II, which had to be rescheduled because of the inquisitors' upset feelings. This astounding level of privilege paints a different picture of the offices of the Holy Office than reality suggests. Familiars were intended to be spies, the eyes and ears of the church. Inquisition records, however, which were exquisitely kept, show that the most denunciations were made by ordinary people and not via the testimony of familiars. Familiars were regarded by locals with disdain and suspicion. Where there were conversos on the town council, familiars oftentimes faced discrimination. As time went on, the number of familiars declined, implying that the post, even with all the extra privileges, was not much sought after. This, plus other evidence, suggests that the Inquisition never built up an organizational apparatus for social control. In fact, most Spaniards never saw an Inquisitor during their lifetime. Each Inquisitor was afforded their own secretary, a fiscal or public prosecutor, a police officer for the arrest of a heretic, a receiver, a nuncio, a porter, a magistrate that was responsible for administrating the property that was sequestered, and a private doctor. The doctor, as well as the inquisitor and secretary, had to be present at any session that involved torture. The Inquisition certainly utilized torture during its investigatory process. However, the stories that come to mind when you hear the term Spanish Inquisition were greatly exaggerated, mostly by foreign Protestant sources. 
Before we get to the torture portion of the process, however, we need to start at the beginning with the Edict of Grace. When the Inquisition's eye became drawn to your town, an Edict of Grace would begin. Parish priests would announce the coming of the Inquisition to their members. It was typical for priests to quietly remind their parishes to stay silent to protect their flock. They knew very early on that the Inquisition used a heavy hand where a defter touch was warranted. At the same time, there were more than a few priests that found themselves in trouble after parishioners revealed that the clergyman's words to the Inquisition were to stay silent. The Edict of Grace began a 30-day period where citizens were told to confess all sins and to let the Inquisition know about anyone else's sins that they knew about. They made it clear that any sins found after the grace period had ended would be dealt with significantly more harshly. They were looking for Judaizing as well as heretics. What they got were complaints about neighbors that they didn't like, ones that ate meat on holy days or forgot to say their prayers during dinner or had made an inappropriate joke about the church. The familiars would collect all denunciations, large and small, and pass them along to the prosecutor to decide who would face charges. After drawing up charges, the prosecutor would investigate and interrogate the witnesses before passing on the court deliberations to the inquisitor. If you thought about torture when I just said the word interrogate, that is how intertwined the association between Spanish Inquisition and torture has become. The interrogation of witnesses was just a set of follow-up questions, nothing more. You see, the Inquisition was not quick to arrest. Torquemada's own instructions encouraged inquisitors to defer the arrest and wait until more conclusive testimony and evidence had been gathered. This was done for practical reasons, as an arrest served to put the heretic on notice that he was being investigated. An arrest, or clamosa, occurred simultaneously with the confiscation of property. This was necessary because of the single largest flaw regarding the setup of the Inquisition, namely that it was never given an operating budget. This is perhaps the strongest piece of evidence that Ferdinand never intended for the Inquisition to become a permanent institution. As a separate court system, the Inquisition had to purchase its own buildings, pay its employees, and house prisoners. Their prison cells were typically rented out of private castles that had basement cells that were no longer utilized. They were also said to be significantly nicer than the ones that the civil courts used. Prisoners were able to decide the level of comfort that they wished to have as they paid for it via the sequestration of property upon their arrests. A larger prison cell and better meals would cost the defendant more of his or her own money. One could even hire a private servant who would work for them while they were in prison. Inquisitors typically came from law schools and thus were very deliberate with their investigations. This meant that the defendant typically spent months awaiting trial. A false accusation could quickly impoverish the family of the accused, who were both deprived of a potential worker and had to pay for their care. Besides the occasional servant, the only person that a defendant could see during pretrial detainment were their lawyers. The defendant even had to pay for any paper that was requested to help them prepare their defense. The Inquisition was so detail-oriented that they numbered the pages to know exactly how many were used by the prisoner.
The fact that the Inquisition had to appropriate funds from its victims left them exposed to accusations that they were lining their own pockets. America showed the danger of letting a police organization control its means of funding. Riots broke out in 2014 after officers killed unarmed Michael Brown, an African-American youth who was walking away from officers. As riots consumed Ferguson, Missouri, many wondered at why Michael Brown would ignore the command of a police officer. A national investigation uncovered that the precinct had started over-ticketing minorities in and around Ferguson to make up for a shortfall of state funding. Instead of firing officers, they paid for their contracts by writing tickets for driving one mile over the speed limit and jaywalking. Most tickets went to minorities. That created a great deal of mistrust between the African-American community and the officers of Ferguson. Distrust that led Michael Brown to ignore the officers' calls to stop walking away from him. Boldenaz, a chronicler of Seville, said that it was noticeable that, quote, the great number of prosecutions were against moneyed men. By 1504, an accused man asked his jailers why it was that only the rich were burnt by the Inquisition and not the poor. Worse, the crown was complicit in any get-rich-quick scheme, as they were entitled to one-third of the property that the Inquisition took. The Holy Office had three routes for obtaining funds. First of all, fines, which could be levied at any rate desired. Then there were penances, which were more formal and were usually only given during auto-defes, a solemn occasion that we will get to later. And lastly, there was the ability to commute your punishment by paying the Inquisition vast sums of money in order to get out of trouble. It is probably not the shrewdest idea to make it so that an Inquisitor cannot afford to eat unless they find someone to burn. During times of hardship, Inquisitors would have to travel so far away to towns in order to seek out new heretics to penalize. Eventually, local parishes agreed to divert some of their own funding to keep the Inquisition alive. Part of the reasoning for that may have been their desire to keep them away from their communities. Even with churches chipping in, operating expenses exceeded income by 14.6% in 1548, and by 1661 the Inquisition was running a yearly deficit of 33.8%, as the bureaucracy absorbed a larger proportion of revenue. In Cordoba, salaries consumed 75.6% of the income. Capitalism offered a temporary resolution for some districts. In what were known as censos, the Inquisition would rent out properties that they had seized to make a larger profit than they would have from a one-time sale. Secrecy surrounded every step of the process that followed an arrest. This intense secrecy was a double-edged sword for the Inquisition. The fear of the unknown and the rumors that swirled about the Inquisition's dungeons surely terrified many accused into early confessions, but it also meant that the Inquisition stayed silent in the face of the worst accusations against it. Spaniards were sworn to secrecy about everything that had occurred after they were released. The Inquisition was so secretive that they never even published any actual set of laws, meaning it was impossible to know what the court thought was illegal in the first place. The Inquisition's methods directly violate most of the rights enshrined in the United States Bill of Rights. Unannounced on the day that suited the Inquisitors, the detainee was brought before his judges. He was seated, having stood only to hear the accusation read out to him. This first hearing was designed to establish the identity and the past history of the accused. 
He was questioned about his parents, his grandparents, the trades that he had plied, the towns where he had lived, his spouse and their children. He then had to explain where he was raised and by whom, what studies he had pursued, any travels he had engaged abroad, and in whose company he had traveled with. He was tested to see if he knew the principal prayers of Catholicism, and he was required to say where and when and to whom he last made his confession. This was the preliminary phase of the trial. Immediately after, the inquisitors entered upon the nub of the matter. Giving no details, they invited the accused to tell them why he had been arrested and to make a full confession for it. This formal request or admonition was repeated three times over a period of several days. The accused never heard what crime they were alleged to have committed. Instead, they were presented with the expectation to confess. This enforced ignorance of what they were accused of oftentimes broke down the prisoner. If innocent, they remained totally lost in the wilderness trying to figure out what to confess to. It also meant that they might confess crimes that the Inquisition were not aware of. If they were guilty, the prisoner was left to wonder how much of the truth the Inquisition really knew, and whether it was just a trick to force them to admit full guilt. At this point in the procedure, the defendant had to guess what evidence the court had against them. The closest equivalent in America's legal system is when a police officer asks a driver if they know how fast they were going. The officer knows the answer to the question. If you say a number that is lower than what you were actually going, then they can shove the actual speed in your face. If you say a number higher than what the radar gun registered, then the officer can write the ticket for the speed that you just confessed to. But truly, the best example is when you are unsure if your mother caught you in the act when she claims, you know what you did. Here's a real example of a challenge that this caused Spaniards. In 1568, a woman was detained and accused of not eating pork, something that most Jews refrain from and of changing her linen on Saturday. She was tortured on the potro, or rack. The secretary had to be present in every torture session so that he or she could accurately write down the confession. Also present in every torture was the torturer, as the inquisitors never did the torture themselves, along with the doctor and the inquisitor himself. Once strapped to the potro, the accused pleaded with the observers, saying, Senors, why will you not tell me what I have said? Senor, put me on the ground. Have I not said that I did it all? She was told to confess. She said, I don't remember. Take me away. I did what the witnesses say I did. She was then told to tell in detail what the witnesses said she did. She cried, Senor, as I have told you, I do not know for certain. I have said that I did all the witnesses say. Senors, release me, for I do not remember. She was again told to confess. She said, Senors, it does not help me to say that I did it, and I have admitted that what I have done has brought me to this suffering. Senor, you know the truth. Senors, for God's sake, have mercy on me. Oh, Senor, take these things off of my arms. Senor, release me. They are killing me. Do you not see how these people are killing me? I did it. For God's sake, let me go. After the third warning to confess, the prosecutor eventually read the articles of accusation. These told the defendant what they were alleged to have done. However, the prisoner was never allowed to know who had testified against them. 
The accused was then required to plead guilty or innocent of the charges, on the spot, with zero time to think or consult with their court-appointed lawyers. The court-appointed defense lawyer was unique to the Spanish Inquisition. Prior inquisitions had not allowed for any defense lawyers, while the Spanish iteration mandated the presence of one, paid for, of course, by the confiscation and sale of the defendant's possessions. The anonymous nature of all witnesses meant that neighbors could use the inquisition to settle scores with those they did not like. The fact that denunciations were so prolific that the inquisitors did not need to use their familiars as eyes and ears suggests that many neighbors turned on each other with very little hesitation. The Spanish Inquisition is synonymous with torture, but that's mostly Protestant propaganda. The Holy Office used torture at a significantly lesser rate than most European courts of the time, and at a lesser rate than the Spanish civil courts. For the Inquisition, torture was typically used only as a last resort to elicit a confession. Those confessions given under torture were not allowed to be used in the court proceedings that followed. The Inquisition knew that victims would say anything to end torture. Instead, those that confessed during torture had to repeat that confession after the effects had worn off. Because the Spanish Inquisition forbade anyone from being tortured twice, however, they rarely ended a torture session, and instead just suspended it for the moment so that it could be resumed later on. Torture was more common at the beginning of the Inquisition, with Torquemada being known as one of the most aggressive and bloodthirsty of the 45 Grand Inquisitors. In Granada from 1573 to 1577, only 18 out of the 256 accused were ever subject to torture. That translates to about 7% of the accused. In Seville, from 1606 to 1612, only 11% was tortured. And finally, in 1816, four years before the end of the Inquisition, the Pope forbade any tribunal subject from being tortured. Despite claims otherwise from websites all over the world, which include some awesome pictures of what they claim to be Inquisition torture devices, the Spanish Inquisition used only three torture techniques to gather confessions. This was in part because church law dictated that the Holy Office could not kill, nor could they shed blood in the search for heresy. The doctor was present for each session to make sure that the victim would not fall prey to an over-exuberant torturer. All the methods used were common throughout Europe, and none were exclusive to the Inquisition. The first was the Garucha. In this, the prisoners' hands were tied at the wrist behind their back and heavy weights attached to their feet. After being constrained, they were raised high in the air by their tied-up wrists, sometimes as high as 30 feet in the air. After dangling for a time, they were suddenly and unexpectedly dropped. Right before hitting the ground, the rope would pull tight, jerking the prisoners' arms out of their shoulder sockets. Dislocated arms and legs can be excruciatingly painful. The second device at their disposal was the toka, a form of water torture, somewhat similar to waterboarding. The accused was tied down on a rack and his mouth was forcibly kept open. The torturer then put a toka, or linen cloth, down his throat, which acted as a conduit for water that was poured slowly from a jar. 
The Inquisition could increase or decrease the pain level of this torture by modifying how much water was consumed. The third method was the most used after the 16th century. It was the aforementioned potro, or rack. The accused were bound tightly on a rack by cords which were passed round their torso and limbs. The torturer could then turn a wheel and tighten the cords around your body, biting into your flesh. In all three tortures, the accused were stripped nearly completely naked, and there was no age limit for victims. Women as old as 90 were recorded as having been put on the potro, and in 1607 a girl aged 13 was subjected to torture. While in detention, the Inquisition had two tools to use with unruly prisoners. Some were gagged for continuing to blaspheme while in prison. The second tool was the pie de amigo, a large and sharp iron fork that was placed between your chin and your chest. Letting your head fall or not looking your confessor in the eye would result in an intense stab wound. Prisoners were never allowed to let rot in their cells, however, as even a life sentence only lasted for ten years. The defense was only allowed to offer written arguments on the behalf of their clients. There was no cross-examination of witnesses. The records of the Inquisition constitute the fullest prosecutorial records to survive for any judicial tribunal of early modern times. Being able to see the statistics, it becomes easy to divide the Spanish Inquisition into four distinct phases. The first was focused on conversos, and lasts from 1480 to 1530. The second phase was relatively quiet during the beginning part of the 16th century, where the Inquisition focused on the group referred to as Old Christians. The third period pitted the Inquisition versus Protestants and Moriscos, Muslims who had converted to Christianity. And the fourth phase was the 17th century, where the Inquisition battled witches. With the power of the prosecution, the defense, and the judge in the hands of the Inquisition, they were typically able to obtain a guilty verdict. The Inquisition almost never found anyone innocent of what they had been accused of. Acquittal meant admitting an error was made in the arrest of the victim, and the Catholic Church does not like to admit mistakes. It therefore became common to suspend cases rather than end them. Toledo averaged less than two acquittals a year from 1484 to 1531. Suspicion of a verdict meant that the trial could start up again at any time that new evidence came to light. Once the defendant confessed or was found guilty, there were five punishment options available for the Inquisition to choose from. Sometimes a penance was assigned, which could involve anything from saying a few prayers or donating a large portion of your money to the Inquisition, what we would call restitution. Flogging was regularly prescribed, but only used against those of low social status. The condemned would be whipped through the street, naked to the waist, and were often mounted on a donkey for greater shame. One hundred lashes were common. Prison time could be assigned, all at the expense of the victim and their family. Burning the criminal at the stake was the third option available. With this, or any of the other punishments, the Inquisition could assign an extra penance meant to shame the victim even further. The offender would have to wear a San Benito every time they went outside of their house for the rest of their lives. Sacco bandito, which it gets its name from, means corruption in Latin. This full-length vest and accompanying hat told everybody that saw them that they had run afoul of the Inquisition. The embarrassment for the family would last even after their death, as a San Benito replica was sent to the local parish church for eternal display. It was hung with the victim's name attached to it. 
The fourth punishment option was devised by Ferdinand himself. Prisoners would be sentenced to serve as a rower next to slaves on a gallery ship. Next to death, this was the most feared of the available options. This sentence typically lasted for less than five years and was the common punishment for bigamy and sodomy. While this sounds like overkill, the secular civil Spanish courts could sentence a criminal to the galleys for life. The Inquisition in Mexico created its own unique punishment first administered in 1664 when they smeared a penitent with honey and feathers while condemning him to stand in the heat for four hours. Executions were held directly after an elaborate ceremony in what was known as an auto de fe. When assigned to die, the prisoner would be notified the night before so that he or she could prepare their soul for confession and repentance. Such a short window of time also served to prevent appeals. The autos served several purposes. The crowd level suggested that there was a large buy-in factor by the people of the time. It is clear that they served as both a religious ceremony and as entertainment in a world without the internet, or even books for the beginning of this story. There was no doubt that they were extremely popular. They were held with great fanfare in the largest available public squares, a month before the proceedings, carpenters would descend on the town or village to build an elaborate stage for the ritual. Priests were obligated to proclaim the date of the ceremony at Mass for two weeks before the event. Breakfast was included for all those at the morning's Mass, including the condemned. Then a midday meal is served before the procession and another Mass begins. As would be expected, religion was at the front and the center of the proceedings, and in the early afternoon the reconciliation of the sinners would occur. At this point, the criminals would confirm their confession to the crowd. This was crucial for a few reasons. Number one, the Spanish Inquisition wanted to make it clear that they were only disciplining the guilty. That allowed everyone to enjoy the proceedings more and prevented the rising up of any martyrs against the holy office. Anyone that was considered a risk of blasphemy against the proceedings were gagged for the entirety of the auto. Secondly, and more importantly, the point of the auto de fe was not to save the heretic's soul, but to ensure that the public became petrified of sinning. It served the objective of portraying hell as the singular worst place imaginable. If it was so terrible, one might be willing to do anything, or to avoid doing something in order to evade it. It was not enough for the heretic to admit that they had sinned and declare that they had repented, they must be made to do so in public in order for it to become a lesson to all of the faithful. This enables us to look at the public execution viewed purely through the lens of preventing more heresy. It's important to look through every action that the Inquisition took through this lens. They did not care as much about your human body as they did your heavenly soul, hence why they administered the Eucharist to those condemned to die. The burnings were the most spectacular component of the autos but they were the least necessary part of the proceedings. Most of the autos took place without a single piece of wood being set alight, and more victims were burned in effigy than in person. 
It was possible for someone to confess and then convert to Christianity at the last minute. When this happened, the convert was rushed to a specially designed room underneath the stage. There, they were checked for sincerity, and if they had passed the test, they were baptized and cleansed from their prior sins. The Inquisition was extremely skeptical of those who suddenly found God while facing death, and the Inquisition had no patience for repeat offenders. There was one incentive to go along with the proceedings for the criminals. A heretic that repented for the crowd was relaxed as the euphemism that the Spanish used quietly, right as the flames were lit. They did this via a chain that they wrapped around the victim's neck. As soon as the fire at their feet was lit, a guard would tighten the chain and strangle the victim to death. Those that refused to confirm their earlier confessions as it was read to the crowd were left entirely for the flames, which could take a number of agonizing hours before death came. There were staggering numbers that went through an auto, which was never done on a consistent basis. Madrid once went 50 years between autos. Bear in mind that most offenders were not burnt. It is alleged that the speed record for an auto de fe was set in Toledo in 1486, where the tribunal managed to deal with 900 reconciliations. After any deaths, the ashes were scattered through the fields or into a river, and a San Benito with the victim's name on it was hung in the local church. There was no age limit on those who were condemned to die. Women aged 80 and boys in their teens were both incinerated. The Inquisition was proud of their actions. They even commissioned a series of paintings by Pedro Garote to commemorate the auto de fe. Ferdinand and Isabella never attended one, but for the monarchs that followed, they were can't-miss appointments. Now that we have a better understanding of how the Spanish Inquisition operated, let us turn our attention back to the first era or phase of the Inquisition, the time period where most of their time was spent dealing with the formerly Jewish conversos. This period lasted for 20 years and was the only period that the Inquisition made money. It was effortless to find a reason to denounce a converso as Jewish if they held on to any of their old cultural traits. Most Jews at the time did not eat pork, which is the number one meat in Spanish cuisine. That meant that anyone who did not like the taste of pork was immediately suspect of Judaizing. They could also be accused if they did not know their prayers perfectly or miss church once, or even harsher if they forgot to fast on a holy day. The majority of those arrested seemed to have been hauled before the court based on gossip, personal malice, communal prejudice, and or simple heresy. According to a Jewish chronicler of the time, Christians testified against conversos who would not pay them. The best option for some was to confess every mistake they may have ever made during an edict of grace. Juan de Chinchilla, a tailor in Ciudad Real, made the mistake of admitting to Jewish practices after the grace period had expired in his city. The only witnesses against him spoke of things they had seen 16 years earlier such as missing church and not eating pork. He was relaxed at the stake for those crimes. Harsh results like this had the opposite effect as intended and caused individuals to not trust the Inquisition. This caused individuals to bury their beliefs and truths rather than betray them. 
If you judge the Inquisition by whether it accomplished its assigned task, then you have to find that the Spanish Inquisition was a complete success. Records show that the number of cases brought against conversos for Judaizing steadily declined after the first 20 years, which, once again, I will point out were the harshest years of the Inquisition. But this success is as likely due to the longevity of the mission rather than something they directly caused. By 1532, anyone punished for Judaizing at the age of 50 would have had to have been 10 years old at 1492. Anyone younger than that would have been too young to remember the Jewish environment and practices of their families before the group was expelled. After the 1530s, the collective memory of Judaism disappeared from the Iberian Peninsula. The Inquisition had managed to erase it from the collective consciousness of their people. There were a few subtle reminders, such as Hebrew being taught as a language study at select universities, but for the most part, it just ceased to be. By the 1540s, conversos had virtually disappeared from Inquisition trials. Feelings against Jews showed itself more in the prejudiced language rather than in direct persecution. Interestingly enough, the Inquisition had to also deal with policing Christians from using the term Jew as an insult to another Christian. This is not to say that there were not Jews in Spain. They just got significantly better at hiding. These crypto-Jews, as they became to be known, stopped practicing circumcision as it made their children liable to discovery. Synagogue meetings were impossible, as was celebrating the Sabbath, so Jewish citizens would make more subtle celebrations or shift them to different days. They adapted to conceal their faith. The Inquisition did its best to root out the crypto-Jews, but as you can tell from the following script that was sent out to be read at Mass, they were not very good at it. This passage describes what they were looking for. Quote, If you know or have heard of anyone who keeps the Sabbath according to the law of Moses, putting on clean sheets or other garments, and putting clean clothes on the table and clean sheets on the bed for feast day in honor of the Sabbath, and using no lights from Friday evening onwards, or if they have purified the meat they are to eat by bleeding it in the water, or have cut the throats of cattle or birds they were eating, either in certain words or covering the blood with earth, or having eaten meat in Lent on other days forbidden by Holy Mother Church, or have fasted the great fast, going barefooted that day, or if they say Jewish prayers at night begging forgiveness of each other, the parents placing their hands on the heads of their children without making the sign of a cross or saying anything but be blessed by God and by me or if they bless the table in the Jewish way, or if they recite the Psalms within the golden pottery, or if any woman keeps 40 days after childbirth without entering a church, or if they circumcise their children or give them a Jewish name, or if after baptism they wash the place where the oil and chism were put, or if anyone on his deathbed turns to the wall to die, and when he is dead they wash him with hot water, shaving the hair off all parts of his body." End quote. There was internal debate within the Inquisition that by listing the traditions of the Jewish people, they were keeping the beliefs alive for them. You can imagine a young child bugging his mother during Mass asking, why is it bad to turn towards a wall when you're dying? 
As the Inquisition went on, fewer cases of Judaizing were brought forth, and even fewer involved relaxing the accused. In Catalonia, for instance, only seven victims were burnt in 1488, and in 1489 there were only three condemned to die. Even though the numbers declined, it was clear who the Inquisition initially targeted. In Catalonia, between 1488 and 1505, only eight out of the 1,199 arrested were non-conversos. We will end on a sinister note, which is probably the tone that this type of talk deserves to end on. If you're thinking that these Dominican friars and monks that made up most of the inquisitors were awful, terrible, and evil, you're probably right. Many of them thought they were doing the king's and God's work. They did their job deliberately and within a clearly delineated, although secretive, set of rules. But there surely were those that knew what they did was amiss and still pursued it anyways. One such individual was Lucero, who was appointed as the Inquisitor of Cordoba in 1499. Lucero relaxed more individuals than any other Inquisitor. In 1504, he burned alive 120 victims at one auto, and then another 27 a few months later in 1505. The purpose of these auto de fe's were to cover up a corruption scheme that he led. You see, he had made a career out of extortion, arresting leading citizens on trifling or false pretenses in order to seize their property for himself. Witnesses in 1500 testified that he had compelled conversos to teach Jewish prayers to old Christians so that Lucero could allege those that were higher up on the economic ladder of Judaizing. Lucero was removed by the king in late 1506, right before he was set to dispatch another 160 people to the flames. Corruption existed at all levels of the Inquisition, with subordinates able to line their pockets, among the more notorious of cases was a scribe who locked up a young girl of 15, stripped her naked, and whipped her until she agreed to testify against her mother. And in Toledo, in 1487, a familiar had managed to steal $1.5 million worth of confiscated goods that were meant for the Inquisition. Unfortunately, the Inquisition only answered to the monarchs, and they had other obstacles on the horizon. Con tus labios rosados Yo me muero Por una prueba de placer Siempre que estoy a tu lado Lo que siento Nadie más lo podrá saber Vamos y sin censura Yo te hago todo a ti dulzura Que paso en ti yo solo cuenta todo Y si tú quieres te pone a buscar Como tú lo mueves a pa pam pam, haciendo locura en la mañana. Si alguien te pregunta no ha pasado nada, solo amaneciste en mi cama. Dale besame.